Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Lachlan Island isn't about Northern Ireland, it isn't about one atrocity, it isn't even about the Troubles, it's about the state allowing the killing of its own citizens. It was the 18th of June 1994, and up and down Northern Ireland the pubs were full of excited tension. The Republic of Ireland football team were playing Italy in the World Cup. In the small village of Lochin Island, in County Down, the local pub was crowded with 24 men, their rapt attention fixed on the small TV screen showing the big match. Being let out for the 16th time by Andy Townsend, but let us now enjoy this moment, Aaron Levine in the USA. Signori Baccio. At 10 minutes past 10, two men dressed in boiler suits and balaclavas, burst through the door. One of them had an assault rifle and sprayed the room with more than 60 bullets. Six men were killed outright and another five were wounded. It was one of the many, many atrocities committed by both sides during a long period of intense fighting in Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles. But it was an episode that one journalist would never forget and one that he would find himself reporting on still, more than 20 years later. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. Could we just start with your mm, name? Yeah. Barry McCaffrey, a reporter with the Detail Investigations website in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Barry still remembers where he was when he heard the news of what had happened in Lochin Island. I can remember vividly. I was had been watching Ireland play Italy... Ireland had won, everybody had gone to the pub, you know, lots of celebrations. It was June the 18th, it was a balmy summer night. I was 24 at the time. So I I was in a bar in Derry, probably 100 miles away from Lachlan Island, and then the uh, news started to filter through that there'd been this attack. Slaughter in Lochin Island as loyalist terrorists shoot 11 people in the back as they watch the World Cup on television. The massacre had been widely reported at the time. The victims were mostly Catholic men and the perpetrators were believed to be members of the Ulster Volunteer Forces. They claimed that it was in retribution to a previous murder committed by a Catholic Republican splinter group. There were any number of tragic tit-for-tat killings back then. Despite this, the Lochin Island murders were big news. 
Among those who sent messages of sympathy were the Pope, John Paul II, US President Bill Clinton, and Queen Elizabeth. The eyes of the country, even the world, were under police there, and it seemed, at first, like it would be a simple enough case to crack. The UVF had claimed responsibility within hours of the attack. Then, the getaway car was found the morning after the killings, in a field nearby. And not long after that, the police came across a holdall containing the assault rifle, as well as suits, balaclavas, gloves, three handguns and ammunition. The police promised the families of those that died that they would leave no stone unturned in bringing their killers to justice. Six men were arrested pretty soon after, but then they were released without charge due to lack of evidence. And then, nothing. But perhaps to understand what was going on, we need to zoom out. You see, six weeks after the atrocity at Lochin Island, a ceasefire was called between both sides of the Troubles. A fragile, much longed for peace. And it seemed like the killing at Lochin Island was an unpleasant reminder of an all too recent history. So the investigation into the murders seemed to stop. The leads ran dry. That is, until Barry got involved. Barry is one of Northern Ireland's top investigative journalists, but back then he was just starting out, and he began not far from the town of Lochin Island. My first job in journalism as a, a junior reporter, a cub reporter, whatever you want to call it, was in Downpatrick, which is the next town to Lochin Island. It's six miles away, and that was three years after the attack. So, you know, it was very much still on the agenda. It wasn't just that. Barry's family were friends with the Logans. Aidan Logan had been one of those mown down in the violence, and his wife Claire and daughter Emma were left bereft. But while Barry was interested in what had happened since the massacre, the family members were certain they just wanted the police to be allowed to get on with their jobs. But then the years passed... And they kept on passing. The families never spoke for the first 10 years, never did a TV interview, never did a newspaper interview, because they, the police told them that, have faith in us, we'll, we'll, we know who the killers are, we'll catch them, we'll bring them to justice, we'll put them behind bars. And the families believed that for 10 years. 10 years after the massacre and no one had been charged, no one had been brought to justice. And what's more, serious failings in the police investigation were becoming apparent. The getaway car, which could have been full of fingerprints and DNA traces, was destroyed. So too were all the transcripts of the interviews with the initial suspects. All gone. The families of the victims had had enough. And then when they lost faith and when they started to suspect that, that somebody was protecting the killers, they came to me. Now Barry was interested, of course, but he also knew he couldn't promise the families he would find anything. But he was still willing to try. They first approached me through their solicitor Niall Murphy and said that they wanted to speak. It was difficult for me because of the close friendship, the family connections. Uh, if you can't deliver for them, 
you're not only letting a subject down, letting a family down, but you end up letting a friend down. And that's why journalists shouldn't do stories on, on family or friends. They initially provided the information to me where they had found out that police had destroyed the getaway car within months of the atrocity and hadn't told the families at all for 10 years. The police had destroyed evidence and there was a whole litany of failures in the police investigation. And that's when I started to take more of an interest and the deeper it's like everything else. It's in journalistically. It's it's like an onion. You're peeling away the layers, and sometimes you go down dead ends. Barry started reporting on the concerns, writing about how the evidence had been destroyed, tracing down leads of who the killers might be. He kept on it for years, mostly at the Irish News, and then later when he joined an investigative unit called the Detail in 2011. He had been at the Detail just a few months. When he came in one day... A anonymous document dropped through the letterbox. There it was. A manila paper envelope that would start everything changing. You get hundreds of documents and that's why you have to read every page and every document. The secrets are in the detail and it's never in the executive summary. It's on page 172 at the bottom line hidden in an index. You have to read every page and every line. If you don't, you will miss the story. So this, this document comes through the letterbox of the detail office at the time. You read it and you think, oh my God. This was it. This was what he'd been waiting for. It was an unredacted copy of a vital report from the police ombudsman, who had looked into the possible collusion of police officers in covering up the massacre. The police ombudsman for Northern Ireland had investigated the failures in the police investigation into the Lockhart Island atrocity. And the police ombudsman had written a report. Crucially, this was an unredacted report, which meant that the names were the names of the suspected killers and key pieces of evidence were contained in this report. They weren't blanked out, they weren't omitted. Everything that had happened was in this report. He kept reading. There, in black and white, the whole sorry episode was laid out. The missing piece of the jigsaw in a story like this is you don't know what the police knew or what the, the evidence that the police have because if you have access to the police evidence, you generally have the, the full story, the full picture. If you don't have access to that, either through a friendly policeman or woman or through police documents then you, you're trawling around in the dark nine times out of ten in stories like this you, you never get that telephone book you never get that bible of this is what the police knew this is the forensic evidence this is what they did this is what they didn't do and for some reason some good Samaritan or whistleblower had access to this document and decided that it needed to be made public. Barry stared at the document. He took a deep breath. This is going to unlock everything. But then you, your next concern is, is this Hitler's diaries? The Sunday Times, for anybody who doesn't know the Sunday Times in probably the late 80s, early 90s, had what they, what somebody purported to say was Hitler's diaries and it turned out to be fake. 
and that's always your big concern that somebody is setting you up for a fall and that in that if you produce something that turns out not to be true you're letting the families down uh, and you're letting society down and your and journalism and everything else so Barry knew he was going to have to work incredibly hard to stand this document up to make sure it was the real deal if he was going to be able to report out its contents that the police had actively colluded with UVF terrorists. But how do you do that? And how on earth do you get confirmation when you can't let people know what you have? And when you don't know who you can trust? There was a long and arduous task to... You can't expose your hand, you can't go to the chief constable and say, by the way, did Mr A consort with Mr B to kill uh, different people? So you're trying to verify these documents in a way that that isn't going to tip the authorities off. And that's difficult. So Barry started slow, working to find anyone that might have knowledge of what had happened before and after Lochin Island. And one of the first ports of call was a name mentioned in the report. The police officer who'd been sent to investigate the massacre. It's hundreds of pages. There's one mention of this detective called Jimmy Bins. Barry knew he had to find this Jimmy Bins, but that was easier said than done. Usually policemen, especially in Northern Ireland, but for correct reasons, the, their phone numbers aren't in, in the phone but in the telephone book. And we eventually tracked Jimmy Bins down. Tentatively, Barry dialed the number. As the phone rang, he was nervous. When you call somebody like Jimmy Bins, a retired policeman, you're not phoning him to ask about the weather or the, the football results. You're phoning him about serious failures, which he potentially was involved in. 99 times out of 100, the phone will just be put down on you or else he would, the policeman will say, sorry, not interested and don't phone me back and I'll go to my solicitor. Just then, the phone was picked up. A man with a Liverpudlian accent answered. So I say, introduce myself and tell him what, what it is we're doing. We're making a film about Lockin Island and the, the mistakes that were made and the, the, the fact that the families were let down. Jimmy's from Liverpool. Jimmy had been a soldier, a British Army soldier in Northern Ireland in the 70s, then had joined the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and then when it changed into the police service in Northern Ireland. So uh, Jimmy had been through the whole of the Troubles and had seen some terrible things. So when I explained to Jimmy who I am and what we're doing, and Jimmy said, yeah, I was waiting for this phone call for 25 years. And you think, oh God, right. And you say, well, can we come and speak to you or will you come and speak to us? And then usually if somebody speaks to you, they, they'll want to speak off the record or they'll say, no, I, I just want to leave it, you know. And he said, yeah, I'll come and see you tomorrow. And you're thinking, is this Walter Mitty? Is this the real Jimmy Bins? Or is this guy just wanting to know what we know? Because that, that happened with, with other police officers. Full of suspicion, Barry arranged to meet Jimmy the next day at 2pm. The wait was agonising. The hours crept by until... At two o'clock, this balding, middle-aged man in a pinstripe jacket and jeans and black shirt very unassuming, walks through the door and says, hello, I'm I'm Jimmy Bins. And he tells us this amazing story about how he was part of the murder investigation and he very quickly became aware 
that the killers were being protected. What else did Jimmy know? More after this. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It turned out that the car that had been used in the attack had been sold to the terrorists by someone in Belfast. So Jimmy had been tasked with going to find out more. Here's Jimmy talking to Barry on film. Now, it wasn't unusual when you go to a different area to go to the local police and the local links. They'd have the local knowledge, they'd know the personalities, they'd maybe have a relationship with that, some form of working relationship with those personalities as well. What was unusual on this occasion is that I went down, I was told who I could speak to, who I couldn't speak to, and the people that I spoke to, what they would be saying, but just as importantly, what they wouldn't be saying. And Barry would come to learn that actually the police had a likely suspect all along. A well-known man with terrorist links, Ronnie Hawthorne. Hawthorne was picked up the day after the killings, but Jimmy had been in on the police interviews, and they were highly unusual. We interviewed Hawthorne, yeah. He'd have been arrested early hours, probably five, six o'clock in the morning. Did Hawthorne himself seem to be smug in the interview? I mean, was he, you know, pretty relaxed? He wasn't stressed, that's for sure. In my mind, it's just a terrorist. It's just a hateful, a hating... Uh, bigot. Inside the police station, the interrogation was more than a little strange. The actual questioning about Lockin Island only lasted for about 10 minutes. This was, was a kind of a charade. It was like, I have to talk to you about something, but we're just pretending here. We have to be here for two hours. Let's have a chat. You killed these people. You, you were the gunman. No, I wasn't. Like, we're not going to get anywhere there. You're not going to admit it, that's fine. Let's have a chat. Then the conversation turned away from interrogating Hawthorne to encouraging him to commit a murder, to kill an IRA gunman who posed a threat to the detective. So this detective spent most of the time 
tell him Hawthorne that if he doesn't kill this Catholic gunman soon, <laughs> this Catholic gunman's going to get him. So you're telling the cat, kill the mouse before the mouse gets you, because I'm shit scared of the mouse killing me. And then Hawthorne was released from Armagh, got barracks, probably about six o'clock next night. It was just disgusting. It was. When he was part of the interview, or was interviewing the main suspect, one of his colleagues, rather than questioning the man who's killed six people, his colleague is trying to get this loyalist gunman to kill another person, and he's thinking, what's going on here? Hawthorne lived not far from the place the car had been found. And years later, he was connected yet again to the crime, thanks to DNA testing of hairs found in that duffel bag with the balaclavas and the boiler suits. But yet again, he was released without charge. I never wanted to believe there was collusion in any of the murders I was at, but Lock and Island, you'd have to say someone has been protected. And the truth has been without from the families. There was no drive at all to solve a murder. Jimmy tells this fantastic or gruesome, horrible story. And even at that stage, you, you then you're always pushing. So you're saying, Jimmy, well, can we get this on camera? And you're you're expecting Jimmy to go, God, no, I, I can't go on a camera or you can't use my name. And he says, yeah, OK, yeah. We had put it up to him. We had challenged him, right, tell us your story. He had stood up and he, he told the story and it was on camera. But Jimmy wasn't the only person with a story to tell. There was a local politician, a councillor in Lochin Island, who had his own piece of the puzzle. The atrocity takes place in June 1994. In February 1995, it's Valentine's Day. An envelope comes through the door addressed to Patsy Toman, and he thinks it's one of his friends sending a Valentine's card for a joke. But when he opens it, he finds that it's this letter from a person within the killer gang who say these are the identities of, of the people who killed the guys in Lockin Island and I was part of the gang but I pulled out at the last minute but, and these are the things, the other things that they have done. So Patsy brought the letter to the police and gave it to the police uh, and the police lose the letter. Like so many other vital pieces of evidence in this case, police either lost or destroyed the letter but the letter has never been seen since. But 20 years later, Barry was about to find out that that letter existed. I'm reading the unredacted report and I'd say a letter went to Patsy Toman. Uh, and I, I phoned Patsy and said, Patsy, can I come down and see you? It was, it was a summer's day, I'll never forget it. Patsy has canary birds and he, this is, he's retired and this is what he does. And so he's showing me his canaries and, and everything else and then he brings me in and say, Patsy, it's about this letter that was sent to you and you gave it to the police and the police have now lost the letter. He says, but I kept a copy. And I'm saying, what? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, well, have you still got it? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's over here. And he, I actually think, I actually think Patsy actually gave the police the copy and kept the original. The allegations and the names in the, in the letter were the same names that were in the, the unredacted report. Everything matched up. Here's more from the film No Stone Unturned. Dear Mr Toman, I am writing to advise you of certain facts that I think would be of interest to you. 
and your quest to cage the Lachanine murders. The men arrested after the murder were indeed close to the culprits. The, the commander of the operation. Um, no, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to read it. No, it's, 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 they wrapped that after me once, they'll be after me again. He stops because he goes, sorry, no, I can't do this. They've tried to kill me before and I don't know that they won't do it again. Previously, they'd put a bomb outside his house before Lockin Island. Nobody thought anything less of Patsy because he's, he's quite right. Northern Ireland's still a dangerous place. In many ways, it's a much better place, and but there are still people who will take the law into, into their own hands if they feel that they have the right. The letter was written by Hilary Hawthorne, the wife of Ronnie, the man who the police and everyone else, it seemed, thought was the prime suspect for the killings. Hilary's letter to Patsy explained that it had been her husband who had led the murders that night. What we then found out was that the letter writer had already phoned police a month before and had made the same allegations. She worked in a police station and she kept on telling police what had gone on. And that was, at this stage, you're thinking, what other twist will, will this story bring, you know? Hillary's letter to Patsy explained that it had been her husband who had carried out the murders that night. And it turned out it wasn't the first time she'd tried to get the truth out there. So Barry has a couple of interesting leads. Jimmy Binns exposing his colleagues, and now Patsy Tillman telling him that the suspected killer's wife had shopped him in. And then there's more. In 2012, a new police ombudsman was appointed. A man called Michael Maguire, who vowed to look into the allegations of police corruption. And he did. In 2016, he produced his own report into what happened. Families of the victims of the UVF's Lock and Island attack said they'd been vindicated when the police ombudsman said police officers had colluded with the killers. They also made it clear they want action to be taken against all of those involved. The report had plenty of details, but all the crucial parts had been redacted. The police ombudsman and a government department has to protect individuals and there's all sorts of Article 2 issues and Article 2 rights and protection of life and things like that. So to the ordinary man on the street, you know, Mr A killed Mr B and Mr C drove the car, nobody would have been able to put the jigsaw together. But Barry had an in, a code breaker. The original Ombudsman report he'd been leaked had just enough information in it to allow him to cross-reference the two documents and unmask who was Mr A and Mr B. Because we had the unredacted report, we were able to break those what they called ciphers. We knew person A was Ronnie Hawthorne because in Michael Maguire's report, it said that person A was arrested on the 22nd of May for argument's sake. We knew there was only one person arrested on the 22nd of May and it could only have been this individual. And that was the way that we were able to crack the code. There was one issue where there was one uh, senior UVF Ulster Volunteer Force, it's a loyalist paramilitary group that carried out the attack. Uh, one of their leaders was named 
as having supplied the weapons. And when we go and he started drilling to his activities and everything else, and we're saying, but he, he was in jail at this stage, and, and it turns out there was two people of the same name, two people within the UVF and within senior positions. If we hadn't have done our due diligence, we would have been pointing the finger at the wrong person. It happens in, in a, with every story. You have to be sure of your facts. The only way you can be sure of your facts is you double-check and you triple-check things. But all that took time. It was years now since a whistleblower, whoever he or she was, had sent that unredacted report to Barry. And he couldn't help but wonder what they must be thinking. And I'm sure for six or seven years they were thinking, what are these guys doing? I have given them the key that will unlock what has gone wrong or what what went on in the Lockan Island massacre and they don't seem to be doing anything with it. And because you don't know who your whistleblower is, who your benefactor is, you can't go and thank them or reassure them. And it was security for the source or the the whistleblower and it's also obviously security for us that there was that Chinese wall. Barry had spent months putting all the pieces together, analysing the documents and talking to crucial witnesses. But he knew the time had come for him to officially approach the police. There were things he needed to know from them. We came to a certain stage in the development or the production of the film where we had to go to police and had to more or less tell police what we had. We knew the identities of the suspected killers and to us that was a major step out of our comfort zone because the police could have injuncted us at that stage. You're going to somebody who has a vested interest to close you down and you're telling them how far you're on in the story. It's a major risk. In the end, it paid off for us, but it was a very serious risk because it could have completely closed the whole film down. But it wasn't only fear of the police shutting the investigation down that worried Barry. These were incredibly serious allegations he was planning to make. And by now, he was working with film producer Trevor Burney and director Alex Gibney. They had filmed interviews with plenty of sources. Could those sources be at risk for speaking out? Barry's particularly concerned about Jimmy Binns, the former police officer who told him such shocking things about how the police seemed to suspect it was Ronnie Hawthorne, but turned a blind eye. Even on the day of filming with Jimmy, Barry was still feeling nervous. I'm due to collect him at his house at 12 o'clock, and I go to his house, and he's not there, and he's not answering his phone. And at that stage, you think, he's just panicked, he's, he's gone. And then about three quarters of an hour later I get this phone call sorry I was working come and pick me up here's where I am and so your emotions are it's a train ride because you have a responsibility to your subject and you you, you have a moral responsibility and a journalistic responsibility this guy potentially is putting his life in danger I say to him I say to me you know see once you do this on camera you can't go back because at that stage he had left the police and he was working as a social counsellor in West Belfast if Jimmy went ahead and went on camera and told his story he was destroying his life completely because his old what they called police family his friends were never going to speak to him again because they would see him as a Judas as a pariah But also he could never go back to West Belfast because nobody in West Belfast had known that Jimmy had been a policeman. So if Jimmy had gone back to West Belfast, he was under death threat from dissidents and from Republicans. 
and Jimmy looks at me and he says, yeah, no, I've thought about it. I've thought about it for weeks, but I've decided that it's the right thing to do. And he did. And he was the crucial piece of the film because Jimmy filled in crucial blanks. Crucial, he brought crucial pieces of the jigsaw. And nobody has ever questioned Jimmy Benz's authenticity or anything that he says in the film. And then there was Ronnie's wife to consider. Barry and the filmmakers were planning to tell the world how the police had been told that Ronnie was responsible for the massacre by none other than his own wife. The problem for us was that Hilary Hawthorne self-incriminated herself. She admitted that she was involved in the plot to kill the people in Lockin Island. She was admitting conspiracy to murder. Myself and Trevor go down, find her house and go down to her house and are about to go and knock on her door to say, this is who we are. We're just letting you know, this film's going to be made. You can take part in it or if you don't want to, that's fine. And we're, we're parked at the bottom of a lane to her house, what we thought, and this jeep drives across, you know, across us when we were parked and we realise that it's Ronnie Hawthorne, it's her husband, it's the killer, and she's still with him. It was like a bombshell moment. You've come face to face with the man who the police believe killed six people. He's looking at you and you're looking at him. You know who he is and you hope he he doesn't know who you are and what you're doing. The bigger problem was was that it then became apparent that Hilary Hawthorne was still with Ronnie Hawthorne. Our problem now was, are we putting her life at risk? If this film goes ahead and we say that she informed on her husband twice, are we putting her in danger? And that is why we ended up having to go to the police to say to the police, these are the names that we're going to use in the film. These are the allegations that we're saying and if there are any right to life issues or if this if anybody's life is being put in danger we're telling you now this was six months before the film ever was screened because we were concerned we, we obviously didn't want to put anybody's life in danger or any risks and we wrote to every one of the people who were named uh, in the film and we told we offered them the chance to take part in the film and also gave them the allegations that were being made against them and if they wanted to rebut any of those allegations they we, we were quite prepared to put their defence in the film. Now, they, they never responded. In September 2017, Gibney's film No Stone Unturned was released. Barry was interviewed and his research permeates the whole film as it laid out the whole sorry story. Ronnie Hawthorne described the allegations in No Stone Unturned as unfounded and said it represented a speculative, reckless and irresponsible attempt at an expose. It was a bittersweet moment. Barry was delighted that the injustice he had worked so long to uncover was finally getting the attention it deserved. But he couldn't shake the nerves around what the repercussions might be. The troubles might be long over, but in some ways the country was still a tinderbox. What would the film mean for the families and for the vulnerable sources who had so bravely spoken out on camera? We initially invited Jimmy to the premiere and he said, no, I can't watch it. Uh, you know, I've, I've done what I had to do and I have to move on now. And that, and that was fine. And then about two or three weeks later, I just I'd get a text and it's from Jimmy, and when you see the, the name, you think, oh, God, what's happened now? 
Uh, you know, has somebody said something to him? Has has he been threatened? Has somebody tried to shoot him? Or and he said, I've watched the film, and you think, oh God, he's going to go. You've destroyed my life, or you've you know misrepresented me. Uh, and he said, thought it was brilliant, hundred uh, percent, completely behind it. The only other better endorsement was from the families. If Jimmy Binns was happy with it, and if the families were happy with it, that was enough for us. So it had all gone well, after all. Or so Barry thought. Until one morning, unexpected, a knock on the door. The story's far from over. More on the next episode. I got in underneath the blanket and I just cried. I'm 48 and uh, I was like a baby. The Tip-Off is produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with production support from Chica Ayres. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, and the show is brought to you in association with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and funding from Charities Aid Foundation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.